Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and the bugs we're filing. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going this week, Joe? Oh, doing pretty good. What are you working on? Uh, all sorts of fun. Yeah? Yeah, uh, some of it was little things that I needed to add for FileMaker 19 support, which I can't Mm. actually talk about yet. So that's all the details you get. Um, and then uh, a big chunk of my work was working on the kind of detail display section where once FM Comparison has identified two objects that are associated and the objects have changed, it needs to be able to tell you what changed about them. Mm -hmm. And it's a massive chunk of code. Just big, because it has to be able to take, to a certain degree, arbitrarily complex objects, break them down, and show you what the actual property differences are for each. And the XML is so not designed for flattening. Um, It's not normalized in in kind of database terms. It's Mm -hmm. hierarchical and complex and nasty. And so breaking this up was not fun. And part of the reason that I really wanted to dig into this is, A, this is a kind of a centerpiece of the app. It's actually the leaf of the thing, but it's where you're going to be spending a lot of time looking at stuff. And I really wanted to try it. I keep looking at the system going, I want Joe to work on this, Mm -hmm. how this looks but simultaneously realizing that I didn't know everything that needed to go into it. Mm -hmm. So I can't give you a real sense of where all the edges are. And so finding those edges, at least from kind of the bottom-up approach, is kind of a, a way that I think about data design in a system, is kind of, Top down is kind of here's my outputs. Here's here's what the the end result needs to look like. Now let me design a data structure that's capable of supporting that. Mm-hmm. Bottom up is here's the data that I have available. What kind of output can I make from it? Like what's the best way to represent this in a UI? to show a user this data that I have. And to a certain degree, I've been bumping into a conflict here between these two ways of looking at this problem. Is part of me wants to go, this is what I want the output to look like, without spending the time of figuring out what the data needs to look like, and simultaneously trying to push the data to figure out exactly what the output needs to look like. Yeah. Um, and I know that sounds confusing, and that's part of the problem. <laughs> that's, the, that's the topic. Yeah, trying to wrap my brain around what all the weird little variations are and really, really trying not to hand you a spec for how this needs to work and then spend the next three months breaking it over and over and over again as I go, oh yeah, there's this one property and we're going to need a completely different display type for that and now what do we do? Mm-hmm. Um. So, initially, kind of going into this, I'd I'd decided that for the most part we'd probably be able to handle kind of two different types of properties. Some of them are text, and some of them are calculations. Calculations sound like text, but I wanted those to be in kind of a more monospaced font to call out the fact that they're not just a field name or a long script name, but actually something that may very well have multiple lines of text and, and we have to have to de- dealt with that way. Mm-hmm. So as I start breaking this stuff down and digging deeper and deeper into what's there in the XML and putting it into spaces so it can be surfaced for you to do something with, I started bumping into all sorts of other types. Like Boolean. So far in FM perception, it generally 
just when there's a true value or a false value, it for the most part uses the word true or false. In some spots, I have a little dot. The dot's mm-hmm. on if it's true and not if it's false. But in other cases, not. And I'm not sure exactly what we want to make that look like, whether it looks like a checkbox that's checked or unchecked or something like that. But the actual words true and false are not exceptionally helpful visually. Mm-hmm. Um, I also started playing with a lot of numeric things, like the bounds of a field on a layout, or the position of a table occurrence in the table occurrence graph. And needing some kind of way to format numbers, potentially. Um, There's also a couple of spots that I bumped into where they're kind of like text, but they're specifically multiple lines of text. So think like the available options in a value list. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or um, the names of tables that are uh, used in an account. Or, I'm sorry, a privilege set. Privilege sets can be specific to tables. It might just be a list of ones that have special settings. And for this, while I can... We can just display it as text, but it might be better if we can find a way to treat these a little bit more complicatedly for identifying where the differences are between them. Mm-hmm. So at this point, I wanted to call those out. And we got into a really funky one, which is base64 encoded images. So in the classic DDR, since about FileMaker 7, image data has not been in the DDR. So if you put an image, uh, just threw an image onto a layout, not in a container field or anything like that, but just layout, or image on the layout, when it exported the XML, it would just have, there's an image here, and it wouldn't tell you anything about it. In the new XML, the image data is actually there, which means that, in theory, we can show it to the user. Rather than saying the image changed, I can show you the two of them side by side and go, look, here's how the image changed. Uh, I don't know about you, but that sounds really cool to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm also considering adding a CSS type. So it's kind of like code, but we can actually do some very specific formatting for CSS. Maybe even, like, context highlighting and stuff like that. There's some really nice tools around for uh, rendering CSS into an HTML view. Mm-hmm. So maybe I can put that CSS up there, and then we can make things like collapsible sections. Yeah, you may want to do the same thing with JSON and JavaScript. Um, We may. It's a little harder to identify those. I mean, you can look, I guess, more like uh, code syntax formatting for things that are using like the JavaScript or the JSON functions and FileMaker. Mm-hmm. And the, I don't know if you can actually render what they're producing at this stage. But. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the cool thing about the CSS that I'm talking about is that it's actually tagged in the XML as CSS. Mm-hmm. I know definitively that this is CSS. If you're handing JavaScript to a web view, I would have to look at a string or concatenation of strings and identify that it's JavaScript. Sounds like a new parser. Shh. Let's just dust off the old antler and spend another six months. <laughs> Although now that you've mentioned that, <laughs> sorry, I, <laughs> I wish I could. I wish I could take it back. No, no, no. no. I, you, you might like this one. Um, we've gotten, we've had a couple of meetings in the last couple of weeks with Charles Delfs, the creator mm-hmm. of FM Better Forms, and he's been giving us some some really cool advice and feedback on kind of higher end uh, view and web app development. 
And one of the things that I've watched him do a number of times is he's got an interface where um, all of the structure and such of FM better forms is done in uh, JSON. But some of those JSON nodes may contain HTML. And so one of the things he can do is he can select a chunk of HTML inside the JSON and click a button and it throws that text into a subordinate editor. Mm -hmm. That might be something that we could do. Where you could select that text and then say, let me see what this looks like if you treat it as HTML. Yeah. Or JavaScript. That might be way easier than trying to make it automatically notice and apply the proper formatting. Yeah, same thing might even be useful for FileMaker calculations rather than just viewing them as a blob of plain text, being able to kind of format them loosely as like a simplified coding language in another little pop-up or pop-over. Mm -hmm. Although with the parser, FileMaker calculations may be easier than that. I may yeah. be able to pre-tag that stuff. Like there, you don't really see syntax highlighting in the calculation engine unless you're using a plugin. But there are, there's some plugins to like uh, TextMate and Atom that can format your FileMaker calculations. So it's you can kind of see what things are a little bit. It's not perfect because, you know, again, it's it's hard to tell what is a function and what is a field. Like I don't need to be telling yeah. you this, but. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so the biggest takeaway from all of this, aside from we're going to end up with some special rules for how to format certain kinds of data just to make it easier to read and understand, is I'm probably also going to need some extra levels of indent. Mm -hmm. So in our previous discussions, we were pretty sure that we could reduce this down to kind of header sections and then body rows so that each property just produced a body row and by kind of intelligently grouping those up into little header sections it would we could express something of basically arbitrary complexity mm -hmm. and I think I've bumped into a couple of spots where that's probably not going to be enough. A good example is something like a privilege set. So a privilege set can have table-specific access settings. But within a particular table, it can also have field-specific access settings. And trying to say, this uh, privilege set has settings for this table, and then within that table, also these fields. And doing it without any kind of indent mm -hmm. to help set those off, some way to visually say, all of this is a big chunk, and if you don't care about this chunk, that's great, but here's where the next major chunk starts. With just the header rows that we've currently got, probably not enough. I don't know, we may have to play with it. Yeah, I almost think that that additional level of detail might be useful to have, you know, in a collapsible object at first and disclose it as needed. Yeah. Just depends on the data and the amount of data. Like I can see, you know, a, we've got a list of these big cards in the detail region and I can see one of those privilege sets having hundreds of rows, which isn't really useful when you, now you can't see the whole card. And you mean you maybe want to be able to drill into that particularly, but yeah, we'll have to get creative with that stuff. I have not even been thinking about details because I've been yeah. working on configuration and sidebar and item lists. Yep. I'm just glad I'm working ahead of you in this particular area because so far I'm finding that the things that I'm discovering about every 24 hours would be the kinds of things that would drive you nuts as I change the requirements again and again and again. The other thing that's been a little bit of fun is as I'm doing this, there are, um, in FM perception, I have, I can say if this item has a, um, you know, table specific access privileges, then go ahead and spit that out. But if it doesn't, then you don't have to run all the logic for the children. 
Okay, you can you can do a high level test, and if the high level test fails, you can skip a whole bunch of logic and jump into the next area. But in FM comparison, I'm always dealing with two nodes, two different objects. So just because one of them doesn't have one of them doesn't mean the other one doesn't have it. <laughs> so if you changed it from users can edit this entire record to users can only edit portions of this record, I have to be able to handle both simultaneously. Mm -hmm. It's not an either or, it can also be a both. <laughs> um, and so keeping that in mind is a fun little thing to work into my head because it's one of the big deviations in the thought process of dealing with the code and keeping track of all the stuff in the XML. Um, so, with all of that, simultaneously, also having a lot of fun with bugs. Um, I'm pretty sure it was after our last recording, um, I finally found a solution to the web view bug where I couldn't use the inspector. Yeah, so this was really weird. So uh, it's kind of hard to describe. We were we're inside the FM comparison window, which is a some kind of Safari web view, and you can right click on it and say inspect element like you would in a browser window. But then chaos would ensue. Mm -hmm. You'd see all kind of flashing, and the window would become unusable. And then uh, Dave had a workaround for that, which was make the window really tiny, then inspect element, and then make it bigger again. And that workaround drove me nuts because it made me use the mouse way more than I want to. <laughs> um, yeah, so if you made the window really tiny and did uh, inspect element, it would pop the inspector out to a separate window. Which was great, but it was annoying to me. And I'm mm -hmm. not even writing the UI, so I'm not spending nearly as much time in that view as you are. But the weirdest part was, digging around on the internet, I couldn't find other people having this problem. I had the problem with the build. You have the problem with the build. This isn't some weird machine-specific thing. And I've been seeing this in various contexts for years. Mm -hmm. Just kept driving me nuts, and I couldn't figure out the problem, and I couldn't figure out why nobody else was having the problem. And I finally found the solution. And the solution is it's auto layout. I'm so mad. <laughs> so if your WK Web View, that's the class name, is on the layout and controlled by constraints in auto layout. This happens every time. And uh, if you just convert the entire view to uh, springs and struts, the problem immediately goes away. That's Perfectly. crazy. Absolutely cleanly. And the cool part is, this layout is not very complicated. It's basically one big window with a giant web view in it. So it was not hard to convert the whole thing to springs and struts. And boom, all good. Um, it's just it's just particularly annoying that even when I'm not touching Xcode for weeks, I'm still running into auto layout bugs. <laughs> it's just not fair. <laughs> so we had previously talked about uh, part of this was in working on the uh, kind of developer version of this app that would let Joe dig down and do some weird stuff with it. And one of the pieces of that, as we were talking about it, was it would be really cool if when you entered that mode, it would automatically bring up the inspector. And dug around and dug around, and it turns out no freaking way to do that programmatically. Um, so I wrote some Apple script. Hmm. It's really short. It's about six lines of code that does GUI scripting to click in the middle of the window, or rather right-click in the middle of the window, select that particular contextual menu item, and bring up the inspector. Which works great, but it requires GUI scripting, which gets down into system preferences, whether to allow this application to control other application, and in this mm -hmm. case, just itself. And 
So that requires then effectively being able to sign the app. Otherwise, it constantly loses the preferences. Hmm. Um, so that's a lot of fun. It turned out there were lots and lots of problems in just getting this little Apple script to work. It was also very odd, very odd, to look at an application where I'm writing a Mac, um, a Mac app in C Sharp, in Visual Studio for Mac, which compiles to a Mac app, which is then running AppleScript to automate itself. Mm-hmm. Like that was just too many weird technologies, technologies in too many layers. But made me dig in there, get the code signing working, everything is happy. I sent it to Joe. Joe's happy, and that's great. And then I updated Visual Studio. And bumped into a Visual Studio bug. Where, uh, in this app, after it builds, it copies the web resources over into the application. So the application will have it when everything's ready to run. And that worked fine. And then I added signing, digital signing, and it would copy the stuff over and then sign it. Until Mm -hmm. the new Visual Studio version. At this point, after build actions are now run after it is built and signed. Oh, that's annoying. Before, it used to do after build immediately after the build, but before the signing. So what happens is, when you're doing this signing process, it builds it, signs it, copies over the web resources, and immediately breaks the digital (laughs) signature. Yeah. Which makes the app show up as broken. Yeah, I couldn't open it no matter what I tried. So, filed a bug with Microsoft on that one. Um, it's been forwarded to the appropriate engineering department, and we'll see what happens with that one. I love that. <laughs> Somebody read your bug report. Yeah. Um, and if they follow the pattern that I've seen most recently, when that engineering department starts digging into it, I'll start seeing comments on that bug. But we shall see. In theory, I don't have to go that far. I don't have to wait for them to fix this. It just requires mm-hmm. some additional Google-based research. Because in theory, what I can do is, is the after build command will still run in the appropriate order. So I can add another after build command to do a command line version of signing. So tell Visual Studio not to sign the app. Can you do a pre-build command to just copy the assets first? The assets have to go into a folder inside the application. Hmm. Okay, so you've got to create that folder. Yeah, but it's not just a folder in the structure. (laughs) It's a folder inside the bundle. So until the application is there, I can't copy to it. It's it's a little funky, but this, this command line solution should work. I can't imagine any reasons it doesn't. I just have to figure out what the terminal commands for code signing look like. So I guess when you're building this thing, is this building like an entirely new copy every time you build? Or is it actually just applying the changes? Like applying deltas from the previous build? I honestly don't know. Maybe worth looking into because when I was working with Unity apps, I could have stuff in the application build bundle that wouldn't be overwritten unless I was overwriting that as part of the process. That may have something to do with Unity's asset system, but maybe worth looking into. No, if it's smart, it doesn't have to update everything every time. And so basically running two builds in a row would mean the resources would be copied over the first time and then built the second time or just retained. I Hmm. do a lot of clean and build kind of commands. Yeah. Just naturally. And by default, I do that when I'm making a build for distribution. Mm -hmm. Like anytime I'm going to be sending out the code, I want to make sure that I'm getting a good clean build. I've had a lot fewer problems with that kind of thing with Visual Studio than I ever did with Xcode. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean I'm having no problems. But regardless, we'll get that figured out. Um... And then I got a bug in my head to try and take another shot at integrating Chromium 
with FM comparison. Primarily just so we could do what effectively Mac testing and a light version of Windows testing all from one application. That would be really cool. It's worth my time to dig into. And so I kind of loaded all of the Chromium process knowledge in my head and went and tried to play with it. And mm -hmm. right off the bat, the official standard build script for Chromium was busted. Nice. I don't, I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> the, the files that the build script needs to run didn't exist. They never made the Mac versions of the binaries for that version of Chromium. Eh? Eh. So, uh, filed that bug about a week and a half later, get a response. Okay. Dig in, hand edit the build scripts, and now it builds. And so now all I have to do is figure out how to integrate it, and oh my gosh, it looks terrible. Um... <laughs> I, I'm going to very self, selfishly encourage you to deal with this terribleness because the Safari dev tools are not very good in the WebKit view. Yeah. The Chromium dev tools are very good. Yeah. It's all like C code, though. <laughs> yeah. And, and while there's a bridge and such set up to allow me to talk to kind of Mac or, or Coco calls from inside Visual Studio, I don't know what happens if I start trying to talk to C code that is unbridged in any way mm. from inside C Sharp. Like, it might work. Maybe? I don't, I don't know. Um, but literally as of like... Late last night, very, very, very early this morning, I finally got the thing to build at all. So, we'll take a stab. Um, there's two options if it works. One is we get this kind of super testing version. The second option that's a possibility, and we'd have to do some testing, is we could maybe convert to Chromium universally. Mm -hmm. um, the only reason I'm using two browsers is because previously I couldn't integrate Chromium largely for these same kinds of problems with not being able to get things to build and work. But if we can get one environment that's consistent across the board, that would be great. So, yeah, so that's my fun. Effectively, three bugs filed, two bugs answered, and one bug self-answered. Yeah, that's been my fun. What have you been doing? So a little bit of work on this thing called FM comparison. Yeah? Yeah. We talked last last episode about uh, trying to figure out how to use modules in Vuex and a little bit more of mashing my face on the keyboard. I was able to figure that out the next day. And it's it's not bad. There were some there's some differences in how you reference the state object versus the getters and mutators and actions. And I think we went for the simple one of like leaving everything in. So that, how do I put this? The state ends up being namespaced, regardless of what you're doing when you're using modules. You've got to reference the state stuff with the namespace of the module that it's in. Mm -hmm. the, the getters, actions, and mutators can optionally be namespaced or they can be left in the main store. And the, we decided to leave them in the main store because the way that you namespace them, you end up having to reference a lot of stuff by string, which was kind of gross. Ick. Yeah. So what we came up with, I think, is pretty good. It's much more palatable to me and easier to work on specific features because I, you can do everything in one file without having to scroll this, you know, two thousand line file of JavaScript functions. So it's not a perfect answer, but it definitely made the code a lot easier to reason about. And then uh, I also started working on paging large data sets. So Dave has a a dev version for me and a, a DDR that has a lot of diffs, a lot of objects that have changed over the years. I think you, these versions are like 40 versions apart from one another. 
<laughs> it's it's only about half a version. It's version 4.6 to version 5, not version 5 to 46. I, I just, thought it was I, 5 to 46. No, I, I left the decimal out of the 4.6 because I knew what I was looking at. Oh, so have, have I been selecting the wrong files then on either side? <laughs> I've been selecting the 5 as the old file. In, in theory, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You'll, you'll get the same results either way. Interesting. Yeah, so there's either way, there's a whole bunch of diffs between these things. And there's a couple of categories that have you know, 15,000 items. And as soon as we got to that, our performance in the UI just grinded to a halt. And Bootstrap View has a table element that we're using to display these things. And that table element has some basic paging behavior. And it seems to be pretty snappy. I, I got it working last week and then promptly broke it and then got it working <laughs> again today. And it's not as snappy today as I want it to be. So I think that might have to do with the way that I'm storing the pagination values in the Vuex store. So I may want to see about refactoring that. Um, which those are there now just to have some shared state between different components. But I think what we're going to end up with is kind of these objects that are going to hold the state of the UI for a particular view. and each of these, I guess let me try to break this problem down. We've got categories of FileMaker objects, so like layouts or scripts or script steps or fields, tables, all of those things are kind of top-level categories. And when we're presenting those in a sidebar, you tap on one of those and it loads an item list and a detail list. So you've got this three-column interface. You tap on something in the sidebar, it loads the category item list. Tapping an item in that list loads the detail view. And for the most part, that's going to be true of almost everything. But there are some categories that are going to have a little bit of custom UI where we don't necessarily need two columns in that UI section. And there are also a lot of differences in how we're controlling the data in that UI. So we've got, we want to be able to sort and filter on that list of items. But the things that you're sorting on and filtering on are are specific to that category you're dealing with. So we need to kind of build value lists for each of these and load those. And then, yeah, all of that stuff we can do right in the view level <laughs> in the template files. It's the persistence layer of that. Not necessarily persis persistence between app sessions, but if you're on layout objects and you're on the eighth page of 500 results and you're halfway down that list and you go click somewhere else when you come back to layout objects i would like to be able to restore you to where you are and we spent some time last week talking through how to do that and i've got an approach outlined out that i'm thinking of but i wanted to ask you if you know this question now can we just keep multiple versions of that view alive so right now, when we click on that category row, we're just replacing the view in the router. Mm -hmm. Can we not replace that and just keep multiples of that and just present whichever one we're, we have currently selected? Like from an object-oriented standpoint, can I just keep an instance alive? So to my understanding, in theory, yes. And effectively, you'd use, instead of navigating someplace, you'd push a navigation onto the stack mm -hmm. so you could then pop it back off. I don't know if there's a way to persist multiples without using the stack. And the stack's mostly for things like back buttons. And this wouldn't necessarily be a back. The other thing that's a little goofy is all of those things are currently populated off of the store. Mm -hmm. And we are going to be changing the store in the background. Yeah, but it's not the content that I want to keep alive. It's just the settings, so the properties for that view. You know, mm. an index to indicate what, or an integer to indicate what index position we are viewing in the list. You know, an array of sort orders that we've picked out of a list. 
It's just those little things. So my current approach is I'm going to make some JSON objects to stick those into somewhere mm -hmm. that we can write to, read and write to from the view. And I think that'll be the best approach, but I was wondering if there was a way. Because I was thinking about this in like Swift UI terms, like that would just live in the the view that I'm making for that. But yeah, I don't know. Hmm. There is a lot that I don't know about view. <laughs> but the only way that I would know of to do that would be to use the navigation stack. Yeah, where the and, pop and push thing doesn't yeah, quite work. And that that's not suitable for our use. But that doesn't mean there isn't another answer. Mm hmm. Hmm. That's some of the stuff I've been working on. Um got a lot of work to do on it this week. We also picked out some icons, finally, for emphasis. So Dave and I have been going back and forth on this epic long thread on our <laughs> GitHub issue of, uh, should we use this? No, should we use this? Well, let's check out these 14 options and make big lists of stuff. And I think we finally settled on something called uh, line icons. Um, that's the name of the product, not just the concept. And they're pretty good. Dave made a list this morning or last night of the ones he wants to use <clears throat> for the category sidebar and some options to use throughout the UI for buttons and controls. And uh, now we just need to figure out how to integrate those in. I think there's like a font version that we can use for the mm -hmm. most part. For the, most of the time these are going to show up in the UI, they're going to be fairly small, like you know, 40 pixels, 50 pixels at the most. These aren't like big, crazy graphics. So yeah, that uh, the icon stuff will be interesting to get in there. I've been it's been kind of weird because I'm used to dealing with you know the <clears throat> the web stuff that I've done in the past. I'm making for a website, and this isn't a website. We're using web <laughs> tools, but <clears throat> Dave has customers who will be using the app who won't necessarily have internet access when they're doing so, like behind VPNs and can't reach out. You know, They may have internet access, but they can't reach out to these arbitrary servers. So we wanted a way to get the icons embeddable in the application, and that actually took a lot of options off the table entirely. Yeah. Like a lot of the packs out there, just, nope, you load them from our TDN, and that's how that works. <laughs> Lots of fun. Yeah. Because it, it, it's not like I'm doing anything the way people normally do. Right. It's all weird. So I have a quick retrospective update, which is I don't have an update. <laughs> so I've been, I haven't really had much time to spend on the app lately. I've got a, you know, an enormous amount of someday maybe features that I want to do. And I've been working on this project. I've been working on two other consulting projects and just been keeping myself pretty busy, so I haven't really had much time to look at it. But iOS 13.4 was released last week, and I got one of those kind of automated feedback emails saying, hey, we fixed a bunch of bugs. Can you tell us if this feedback is still relevant on one of the four bugs that I had re reported? It was the most severe one. And it was actually the one that I opened a developer technical support ticket and they closed it and told me to file a bug. Um, so I, you know, I installed the latest versions and built with the latest version of Xcode and none of the bugs are fixed. And that was pretty much my reaction to that. It's like, I don't really want to work on this app anymore until SwiftUI 2 or until all these bugs are fixed, or at least there's some movement on them. But as of now, it's just after spending a couple of weeks working on Vue and PHP and FileMaker stuff, like I'm working on stuff that's not frustrating me and I'm making progress every day. And that's not a feeling that I had working with Xcode. Like every day was just frustrating, either <laughs> dealing with Swift UI's inconsistency and in bugs or dealing with UI kit's total inscrutability and my lack of understanding of how any of that stuff works. 
So I just, I'm not eager to return to that right now. So I'm kind of just going to keep working on the web stuff and yeah, just leaving that on the side, on the back burner for now. Did uh, you get that email from Apple about the June 30th deadline for Mm -hmm. changing the base SDK for application? Yeah. I mean, you're already building with the iOS 13 SDK. Yeah, nothing in that would have uh, affected this app. It'll be interesting to get a a count of apps on the App Store on June 29th. Mm -hmm. And then another one on July 1st. Yeah. I'm wondering how many are going to disappear. Yeah, they've done stuff like this before. It's usually not that they... I think they more more or less get delisted, not that they disappear entirely. Hmm. Because I've still I've still got stuff. I can still see 32-bit apps in the store on certain devices, even though they're not useful on other devices. It's like there's whatever page is still there, and the ability to download that is still there in some capacity. But yeah, I don't know how many. I think it's more rejecting new builds because there were things you know I hadn't updated Random Arrow in two years, and there were things that they had changed about the build process since then. And they didn't take down my build of it. Right. They just wouldn't have accepted that build at that stage. So that's probably what they're going to do with that. I don't know. Gotcha. So I had an interesting side project over the weekend that has to do with Apple scripting and Apple Notes. And I use Apple Notes a lot. I like Apple Notes. I like the UI. I like how it's consistent between Mac and iOS, particularly iPadOS. But uh, there are things I don't like about it, which is I put almost all of my most important information in here, and there's no export. There's no escape hatch. And the closest I've gotten to an escape hatch is you can go to privacy.apple.com and request a download of any of the data that Apple has on you. And they give you, it takes about a week to generate the files, but (laughs) they will send you a link to a download. And for the notes archive, they give you an export of your notes as a bunch of text files and all of the attachments. But you lose a ton of information. You lose all of your formatting. You lose any context in which your attachments were placed. And you lose any of the rich elements that are in notes. So I've got tables oh. and lists of links and all that stuff. All that's just completely missing. So I, I don't understand how they're calling this, you know, they're meeting these requirements for Europe and California when they're not actually giving you your data. They're only giving you a sliver of it. So that isn't, that's a, a worst case scenario. Download one of those if you have to. And I wanted to get my notes out of notes, out of the notes app. So the only thing they give you in the app is the ability to export a single note as a PDF, which is also not super helpful. <laughs> so I decided to look at Apple scripting this. So a couple of years ago, I had moved from Apple Notes to Evernote, and I found an Apple script that would kind of automate that process. And it wasn't perfect, but it took care of almost everything. So I went and tracked that down, and surprise, surprise, Catalina, 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 everything is broken. (laughs) So that script wouldn't run. And most of the steps that interact with notes, the individual Apple script steps are just broken at this point. Mm -hmm. And after, you know, an hour of just Googling and finding stuff, it really seems like the only thing that's reliably working is saying, you know, give me the name attribute of the note when the ID equals this and you pass in a string. That's pretty much the only thing that's working. So I used that. <laughs> I basically brute forced Apple scripting using FileMaker as the thing that's going to loop over things and make individual records or make individual requests. So I made a FileMaker file that would hold, that would pull down the notes data. So first I had it go through and loop over you know, get an array of all notes and create a record in FileMaker for each one of those and put the ID in a field. And then another script that would use that ID to get the name, the modification, the creation, um, a list of attachments, 
the containing object, that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. Populate each one of those things. And then figure out, you know, I've got the containing object ID, figure out what folder that was, and then figure out if that was in a folder and figure out what folder that was in so I can calculate some paths. But the, the attachment stuff is all really broken. I can get a list of attachments and I can kind of see what type of an attachment it was through deduction, basically. I can say, give me the URL element. If it returns a value, then the attachment was a link. If it doesn't, then it wasn't a link. It was a file. And then oh. the stuff to actually return a file was super broken. But I've got my export and I've got my names and I've got my folder path. So I actually kind of back it, backwards engineered this ability to download that export from the privacy site, put it somewhere, and then use FileMaker path scripting to reach into that path based on the name of the note and the containing folder and the containing folders folder. And uh, you're just padding out the beginning of the path with the part on my system. And now I can go through and loop over each of those and put each of those files in a container field. So now I've got my notes in FileMaker, uh, FileMaker fields in a notes table my attachments related to the notes. And I still have to kind of put it all back together again. So one of the things that the Apple script gave me was an HTML version of the note and a plain text version of the note. And for about half of my notes, I can just use the plain text version. For the other half, I need to convert the HTML version into Markdown, which is the opposite direction that most people are going when they're thinking <laughs> of these two. <laughs> okay. But I want to I want to go back the other way, and then in that process, so this is the part that I haven't started yet. Well, I'll probably do this weekend. But in that process, I want to go through and find all of those image and file tags and figure find the name from that, and link it directly to that attachment in my attachment folder, so that by the time I'm done with this, I should have individual notes with all of the context that I had in Apple Notes, in a way that I can kind of archive and not have to worry about any of this stuff going away. And at that point, I will delete everything that's in Apple Notes and then probably keep using Apple Notes and then maybe every once a, once a month or so, re-archive everything in Apple Notes into my database so that I, I still have like a single consistent searchable place for all of the history, but I don't have to worry about you know, some kind of iCloud migration, hosing my entire note stack, anything like that. But yeah, that was an adventure. <laughs> it it would be ironic how bad Apple's Apple script support is if it wasn't so completely infuriating. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty bad. I mean the, the tools is the Apple script tool itself is really cool. Yeah. It just is also really flaky right now. Because they made all kinds of changes to the Notes app and didn't tell anybody, the Apple Script team or whoever is in charge of updating <laughs> the part of the UI that communicates with that. So I also had to bump to pick with you. FM comparison is not Apple Scriptable at all. <laughs> so I was wondering, you were talking about using Apple Script earlier to automate some of the UI. Is there a way you can give me a a box in the settings or I can put a file somewhere on disk that you can check that will just perform an arbitrary Apple script for me. So I can say, because I'm doing repetitive things, mm -hmm. particularly with the Safari stuff. Anytime I make a change to the store, it completely resets the view mm -hmm. in, in FM comparison. So I have to close the current window, close the inspector, open a new window, go into dev mode, select the font checkbox, Hit the OK button, go to configuration, select a DDR, select a second DDR, hit begin comparison, and then navigate back. I have to do that every single time, and I have to do that at least 50 times a day. Yeah. And it's killing me. <laughs> <clears throat> so I would love to be able to automate that and then be able to kind of arbitrarily change it as I make changes to the application that uh, UI. But I think a lot of that would go away if you got the Chromium version working because the Chromium doesn't fall apart every time I 
save a change to the store. Hmm. Okay. So, in general, I, I'm a long-time AppleScript fan. Mm-hmm. So, setting up AppleScript support is not something I'm generally opposed to, except for two things. One is, at this point, I don't trust Apple to keep AppleScript around. Yeah, I know. I, I just don't. I, I keep waiting. I, I've been waiting for five years for them to say, and in the next version, we're killing AppleScript. I'm not going to make that kind of announcement from the stage, but I, they aren't giving me any indications that they care at all about AppleScript. Mm-hmm. And the second piece is that it's a cross-platform app, and I don't want to spend a non-trivial amount of time, because adding AppleScript support is non-trivial, mm-hmm. on a feature that has no Windows equivalent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that said, the way I was planning on going was command line support. And though the structure of the command line stuff should be similar, or, or, or rather the structure of the command line stuff may be different, the functionality that it's going to try and access and should be able to access should be the same across platforms. Mm-hmm. So that's the direction that i want to go which should also meet your requirements yeah yeah my requirements are just fussy during development like if you sent me a chromium version that worked on mac i don't think i would have any any need for what i just said yeah there's also the possibility that what i could set up is a button that knows how to find the files you're talking about Mm -hmm. and so make a one button press that goes and does all of that stuff. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was asking for. Yeah. Rather than adding AppleScript support to the entire app, you're, you're already running a bit of AppleScript to open the uh, inspector. So in that process, maybe reach somewhere on you know, onto the desktop for a specific file name that has the text of the AppleScript. So then I can update that text to do whatever I want. But you just copy that and execute that, if that's even possible. Uh, no. No? Or rather, not without actually adding AppleScript support to the application. Like, even though I'm AppleScript in the application, there is no AppleScript support for this application yet. Hmm. All I'm doing is basically throwing GUI commands at the interface. So it's almost like, just type at the interface. Yeah. And it works. That's the kind of AppleScript support we've got right now. Hmm. Um, it would, it shouldn't be hard to turn that into a thing that you can work with. Yeah. It won't be AppleScript. Yeah. But I can give you a basic automation capability for running those comparisons. Yeah. I wonder, that I, can do. Like, I wonder how much of it I can actually just write in a little JavaScript function that I can just enable during debug mode. I wonder if that's possible. Because really all the stuff I'm doing is just calling functions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, I mean, you've got the buttons in the interface and you've got the source code for what those things do. Mm-hmm. So you should have no problem, particularly since you don't even have to go to the administration screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah to actually run that from the normal uh, results display. You could press a button that, no, because right now you don't send a path back. You send a request for a file Mm. back. That doesn't mean you can't. Small modification to that, and you could send it a path in the JavaScript. Okay. Um, That's... If that meets your requirements, that is really, really close to trivial for me. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the only other thing I wanted to touch on was we talked last week or two weeks ago about the VR bowling side project. And I spent a day installing Unity and unarchiving that project and trying to get it to build. And this is like six or seven Unity versions ago. 
and a <laughs> scripting backend change. And I got it all building, but it wasn't going to be as simple as just swapping out Steam VR for Oculus VR because the Steam VR stuff was pretty tightly coupled to all of the hand logic. So it's something that I could redo. I didn't even bother trying to update that project. I made a new project and started importing some of the scripts. But it got to the point where, like, this is going to be a non-trivial thing, and I just don't feel like it right now, and I haven't touched it since. I also used Unity for the first time in almost a year, and I wasn't crazy about it. I was like, you know, this is, these are weird tools, and you know, I'm already working in two other IDEs. I don't really want to add a third one on right now. So I uh, decided to just throw that back on the back burner, and still kind of playing with VR ideas, but I decided that I've been doing all this web work this year. Why don't I just spend some of my time scratching that itch with web VR rather than Unity? And it'll teach me a bit more about JavaScript along the way and have me, it'll ha I'll have something to play with that's not dependent on a particular platform or device API. And I can just, you know, type some stuff into a computer and it comes out in my face on another device, which is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. like the, and I actually you know, very lazily, I didn't actually want to host a site, so I just made a view app and turned on the live preview and then put my web VR stuff in that and then went to the headset and navigated to that uh, local IP, mm -hmm. which totally works. That live so, yeah. server techno technology is awesome. Yeah. Like, I don't, it doesn't need to be a view app, but there's also no reason for it not to be because the the page, like it really just needs a single like landing page with a bunch of links of VR mm -hmm. rooms you can go to. So it's a very simple view app at this point. Okay. If you hunt around in the Visual Studio Code extensions and add-ons stuff, there's live server technology that is disconnected from any uh, uh, mm -hmm. platform within JavaScript. Yeah. So you could make a single HTML page and then say, start a live server, and it just works. Yeah. So. Yeah. So uh, some of the stuff I want to do with that, with the WebVR side project stuff is, you know, getting back to the idea of, like, I'm good at making applications and, you know, productivity type things. I'm not really good at making games. And as fun as it would be to revisit, revisit the bowling thing, you probably don't have much of a chance of ever turning it into something. But for the short term, I'm going to scratch my VR itch by just making myself some VR rooms that I can go to and be able to do things. Mm -hmm. So I've got my FileMaker database, and FileMaker has a REST API, so I can populate a web page with a bunch of content from my database you know, for instance, my reading log, or uh, I've got a table of ideas, like app ideas or project ideas. Uh, I can connect it to my to-do list application. I can connect it to my new notes database and just kind of build myself some 3D environment that I can work with data in a non-standard way. And then not really sure where any of that's going to go, but it would be interesting to take on some consulting projects to build some stuff in web VR rather than like, I don't want to take on a iOS consulting project and you know, I could, I could always take on more FileMaker work, but it would be more interesting to take on building something interesting in VR without having to worry about going through a gatekeeper like Oculus or steam. So yeah. The other thing that's really cool about WebVR is, is technically it's WebXR, and a lot of the same stuff that works in VR also works in your browser when you're just using your mouse or WASD keys to move around. It'll work on your iPad. You can actually just move your iPad around to move the camera, and it'll work with AR stuff as well. So I can make interfaces that I could use in VR or AR. So if we get some kind of AR headset on the consumer market this year, I could pop my you know, virtual office 
you know, get rid of the background and just pop out the UI elements into an AR scene. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of potential there with you know one technology stack. So yeah, that's what I'll be working on when I have side project time. Which you know, when I have side project time and I don't get derailed, Apple scripting my notes database. <laughs> <laughs> with when I saw that on the agenda for the podcast, I was like, oh okay, I. You know, Joe doesn't do a lot of Apple script. I'm sure that, oh my gosh, Joe, what did you do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was, I'm pretty proud of what I pulled off, though. It... Oh, yeah. No, that, that sounds like a lot. And you went exactly the way I would, even as a longtime Apple script guy, as FileMaker makes fantastic middleware mm-hmm. as an Apple script. Yeah. Connection. But also, it's really good for debugging because I could write very small Apple script, mm-hmm. you know, little blobs, and then step through the debugger and evaluate those on a case-by-case basis. So the other thing I'm using in conjunction with that is the Bbox plugin, which will allow me to write Apple scripts and get a result. So either the error or the text value or whatever, right into a FileMaker mm-hmm. variable or field, which is really handy. For, for some reason. Yeah. There's actually a, some really huge, complicated processes that I wrote for my old company where it was one FileMaker database and a folder of 15 Apple mm-hmm. scripts. And each stage would grab a little bit of data out of FileMaker, then go do something with it, then come back with the results and shove them someplace in FileMaker. And then FileMaker would apply logic to determine whether it had succeeded or failed and notify a user or whatever like that. And bing, and they launch the next one launch the next one yeah it's pretty wild stuff 